We're going to be Matthew 10, verses 26 through 33. I'd like to read for us this, this morning this passage and then pray and then we can go ahead and dive into this passage. Starting in verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, we come before You and ask that You would help us understand Your Word this morning. That for those who are weary would find comfort and would leave rejoicing in Your great name. For those who have backslidden or are being disobedient, strong-willed children, would You convict them and show them Your love and for those whose hearts are made of stone, who do not know You and are far from You, would You cut it out and replace it with a heart that beats after You? We thank You for the privilege, this amazing privilege, of seeing the things that are covered, revealed, and hidden, made known. It's in your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start this message off this morning with a question. Have you ever feared a person before? There are multiple ways that this plays out in people's hearts. Primarily, how I see it, two different ways. You can fear a person so much that you clam up. You almost detach yourself from reality. In line with that, you can please a person or fear a person by pleasing them, changing your convictions, changing the tune of your song to best please them because you fear them. So that's on the one side. On the other side, though, you can fear a person by not wanting to submit to their authority. You can fear what's going on in such a way where you put on a bravado 
puffing out your chest and saying, I'm not afraid of no one, when in reality, that can tend to be just a show that gets put on. When it comes down to it, do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you fear man or do you fear God? You know, I'll confess before you this morning that I am an atypical performance people pleaser. This is something that recently God is starting to stir in my heart and show me that you fear man and the way you like to respond to it is thinking of ways to please them. Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk, right? In response to just, I'm not going to please anyone, so I'm just going to be a jerk to everyone. That's how I'm going to get rid of this. No, but the way that I deal with it is then immense anxiety comes on, and then I don't sleep for a night or two, and then I'm just pacing around my house trying to think of what I can clean next or tidy up, because that's the only thing at that moment that I can control. This is where I think looking at Christians in the past are helpful. Christians who took stands, Christians who were bold, Christians who said, I will fear God over man. One man in particular that I'm reminded of is a man by the name Martin Luther. Some of you remember or know of who Martin Luther is. He's the guy who nailed the 95 Theses to the door. And that caused a huge ruckus inside the church. So much so that he was told by a bunch of bishops and people who were above him to meet with him so that he would recant or say in front of everybody, I don't believe this, I was wrong, you were right. And so he went. It was a hostile environment. This is an away game for Martin Luther. It was him and a few of his buddies around people who were telling him, recant, go to jail, or die. And Martin Luther, as he's standing in front of these people, the legend has it, he looks at them, fearing God, and says, here I stand. Here I stand. I will not change what I have thoughts. This is the Word of God. I stand on it. These are the things that you have distorted. I will not recant what I clearly see in Scripture. Here we see a man who was fearful of God and not his fellow man. And this morning in this passage, this is exactly what Jesus is calling His disciples to. The fear of God over man. As he says right away in the beginning of this passage, do not fear those. Do not fear those. Because what is hidden and what is covered will be revealed. So bring those things to the light. Shout it from the housetops. But when you do, realize that men will threaten you. They will cry out for you. They will want you dead. They want your life taken. So do not fear them that can just kill the body, but fear God who kills or destroys both body and soul. 
And Jesus, knowing that the disciples probably just need a little bit of encouragement after that, talks about how valuable they are to God. And then Jesus gives them a bit of a a test of how do you know if you fear man? Do you acknowledge me? Or do you deny me? So this morning, what the aim of this passage will be is that though people may hate the kingdom of God, though people may hate the king, do not fear them. Let me say that again for us. Though people may hate the kingdom of God and may hate the king, do not fear men. We'll see this in three ways. Verses 26-27, through our first point, the kingdom realized. Our second point, verses 28 through 31, fear the king. And our third point, verses 32 through 33, acknowledge the king. So let's take a look at this first point in verses 26 through 27. We, we come here and Jesus tells his disciples, so have no fear of them. What is the them? What is he talking about? Up to this point in in chapter 10, Jesus has been instructing his disciples on how to be missional, how to be on mission. He's commissioning his disciples to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to do acts of mercy. And he tells them as they're doing this, there will be those who will look at this and see this as tyranny against the kingdom that they live in. They'll look at this and they will be enemies. They will want to persecute them. Who is it that we saw that will want to persecute them? Well, it's the governor's. It's the kings. It's the officials that were put over them. The top of the top. But it just doesn't end there, Jesus says. Those that will persecute you will also be your brothers. It'll be your fathers. It'll be your children. What Jesus is doing here is He is saying that you're old family will even go as far as to hand you over to be put to death. This is the beauty about the kingdom family. God's family. That when you are saved, you are saved into a family. A lot of times, You think even recently, we view this relationship that we have with Christ an individualized, personalized relationship. Which in a sense it is. But it's not just that. Because if you had multiple kids, would you not take one of your kids aside if he just started acting as if he was the only child? No, this is not an only child family that we're a part of. This is a family of God that we are a part of. Jesus is calling them to be a part of that family with this realization that their own biological family might even hand them over to death. So do not fear them. The the them is anybody who is against the kingdom. 
anybody who is against the king. Jesus then goes on, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What does Jesus mean exactly by this? What is the thing that is covered or what is the thing that is hidden? In Mark 4, we get this picture and better understanding that Jesus is talking about the kingdom here. As he tells the parable of the sower, and the disciples ask him, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? Can you tell us? Can you teach us these things? And Jesus tells them the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. You know that strange saying that Jesus oftentimes said after he said a parable, those who have ears, let them hear? It's not that Jesus was during a time in life where people were just going around and they didn't have ears on their heads. It's not that they were earless people walking around. It's he's talking to those who understand the kingdom and what the parable means. And right here, he is explaining that the thing, the kingdom that is covered, will be revealed. And the kingdom that is hidden will be made known. In between the the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus goes off with his disciples and specifically spends time with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is why if you were to look at the Gospels of the inauguration of the kingdom, of this understanding that the kingdom is started, you could look at the epistles or everything after that as the kingdom being explained in greater detail. Because that was the task of the disciples. In Acts 2, we get another picture where the disciples and the people who are Christians now gather with them. They devote themselves to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship, to prayer, and what? The apostles' teaching. Of the revelation of the kingdom that Jesus was teaching the disciples. This is why he goes on to say, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And we get this very picture. Poor, poor Eutychus. When Paul is on the housetop and he preaches into the night and in then to the morning and in the early mornings, Eutychus, poor Eutychus could not make it through Paul's teaching and he falls out of the window. Paul was on the housetop explaining the secret things of the kingdom of God. He was revealing these things to them. The light that we are to bring forward is the kingdom. This is what we are to bring into the darkness, that we are to make known what the king and the kingdom are like. The King, Jesus, who came to save sinners, who came preaching and proclaiming a gospel of repentance and baptism. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of God is at hand and be baptized. 
The kingdom is the realization and the understanding that man can have peace with God now because the king has come. But the king is not one who is coming to overthrow the government. The king is one who comes as a suffering servant. Who rules with love. Who's handed over to be crucified. To bear the weight of sin. He became sin for us. So that when we repent and put our trust in Him, we can be reconciled and have peace with God and not be an enemy of His anymore but instead a part of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure if you're here this morning and you are not a king or a citizen of this kingdom, but this can be yours this morning. You can become a citizen of the kingdom right now by trusting in Jesus. By trusting in His life, death, and resurrection. But this is one of the hard realities that we need to come face to face with is that far too often we don't know the kingdom or the king as well as we should. This is why we must be people of the word. Because the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation helps us understand who the King is, what the kingdom is like, and how to worship the King. We must dedicate ourselves to knowing the King and what His kingdom is like. But oftentimes we have a hard time with this. Oftentimes, out of our sinful nature, we create excuses. We create excuses of being busy and not being able to spend time in God's Word, learning about the kingdom, learning about the king. We do not spend time in prayer asking the king to help us see who he is all the more. I think if we were to get down to even the, the heart of the issue, oftentimes we, out of our sinful nature, we do not want the king and the kingdom to disrupt our own kingdoms. We don't want to be confronted by His kingdom and His kingship because we love our kingdoms. And so we must be a people who dedicate ourselves to the Word and prayer, asking and pleading with the King to show us who He is and what His kingdom is like, which moves us on to the second point. Because Jesus is almost anticipating, okay, we, we tell these people these things, Jesus, everybody's going to love it, huh? And Jesus gives them or paints them a picture of reality of, no, you need to fear the king. This is our second point where we need to fear the king. Why? Because 
It will be easy to fear those who could kill the body. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The worst possible thing is that a person could kill the body. Isn't it? Now, I've heard some say, no, it's, it's having all of my possessions taken. That is the worst possible thing that could happen to me. But you could always have more possessions. I've often heard, or I've, I've heard a few times, the worst possible thing is that my spouse could commit adultery on me. As heartbreaking and as tragic as that could be, yes, there also could be an opportunity for love after that too. The worst possible thing that a human being could do to another human being is kill you because you do not get that opportunity of life again. It is taken from you. And so what Jesus is saying is the worst or the the. The what seems to be the worst possible case scenario for a human to do to you is not actually the worst case scenario because they could kill the body, but they cannot kill your soul. All of us, because we are created in the image of God, have been given souls. But Jesus goes on to say, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Man may be able to kill the body, but he cannot destroy the soul. But God is able to both destroy body and soul in hell. God is able to do that because we are under the curse of sin. And as his judgment rings out, all those who are in sin and have not been cleansed from sin will receive his wrath will be sent into the lake of fire, of torment, where there is constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a judgment that is severe. And what Jesus is encouraging His disciples with is, don't fear the one who can just kill the body. Fear the one who is able to cast you into hell and destroy both your body and your soul. Hell is not an easy topic to discuss, but it is a real topic. Hell is real where there will be eternal torment. And hell is real because God is a holy God. He is a just God. And when we confront Him with our sin, there is no other thing than God can do than to cast those who are unrepentant in their sin into hell. This is because, like I said, God is holy. And we are not. We are not the king of this world. We are not the king of this universe. And this is what makes what Jesus says next a little bit strange. Because Jesus goes on to talk about being killed, going to hell, to talk about birds, to talk about your hair, 
What is the deal? How does this help us fear the king? Well, it helps us fear the king when we properly understand, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Look, if you are a hunter in here, and you've got your 30-odd six pointing at a 12-point buck, the beauty. You know, I grew up in the UP or close to the UP, and, and the song that would always come on, the 30-point buck. We have somebody in here who knows the person that wrote that song. When you've got your six pointed at that buck in the crosshairs, as you pull the trigger and before the bullet hits that deer, God already knows if it's going to hit the ground. He's not surprised by two sparrows falling to the ground. He knows the sparrows. He sees the sparrows. And look at what Jesus says next. He, he moves from birds, so God knows, and he sees the sparrows to talk about what? Hair. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do you know that this is how intimate God knows you? God knows us so intimately that he knows the hairs. He has them numbered. He knows them as many as are on your head or not. He knows them. Now, I don't know about you. I love Sharice, and I feel like I know her pretty well, but I am not counting the hairs on her head. I'm sorry. I love you, but I'm not going to do that. But God knows how many hairs are on our head. That's the intimacy of God seeing you. God sees you. He knows you. In fact, believe it or not, this is kind of scary. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus tells us, Right now in the 21st century, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. You are of more value than birds. Your heavenly Father knows you intimately. He sees you. He understands the pain Jesus is able to sympathize with us in the midst of persecution. This is often one thing that's highly misunderstood is what does it mean to fear God? So how do we fear God, right? That's the question. How do we properly fear God? Is it this, I'm over in a corner shaking because I'm afraid of what he might do to me? I mean, for some people who have come from abusive households, this is, when they hear fear in God, this is what they think of. But on the other hand, some people view fearing God of, well, I'm just supposed to just kind of revere him and respect him like I respect an adult or an elder. 
And I think when we look at what this means, the fear of the Lord or fearing God is this sense of awe. There is not one place in Scripture, at least in the Old Testament, that we don't see when people are met with God that they fall on their face and worship God. Why? Because they understand His holiness and their sin. They see the weight of who God is compared to them, and they can't help but fall and worship God. To be in fear. And yet I I can't help but think of the quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when one of the children asks the beaver, is he safe? And the beaver goes, is he safe? Of course not. But he's good. Because then we see Jesus come and we see such a presence of comfort that he brings where he's able to sit down with the woman at the well. And he's able to confront her sin in such a way where the awe that he leaves her with is she goes back and says, come and meet this guy who tells everything that told me everything about myself. You see, one fear of God, this fear of shaking like a child in a corner, leads to legalism. If we just view the fear of God as I need to fear Him and I need to get out of His way and I need to do things in order that He doesn't hurt me or that He doesn't discipline me, then that leads to a sense of legalism. We live in this relationship with God as if my works will somehow please Him more and maybe He'll give me good gifts. Maybe I won't offend Him in such a way where He'll discipline me. That's legalism and that's a cruel person to follow. But if we live lives of thinking that fearing God is just revering God and we treat him as as a buddy or as an adult, that leads to what's called antinomianism. Which is, I'm anti-law. I don't obey God. I treat him as my back pocket fire insurance. I think The proper understanding of fearing the king depends on the bigness of God that you hold. The proper fearing God comes from looking at God as a holy and just creator that will deal with his that will deal with sin but also realizing and knowing that Jesus has come to bear the brunt of that sin to take it from us as one pastor puts it look you are more deeply flawed than you will ever know and yet more deeply loved than you could bear to imagine This is why it's important as we learn who the king is and his kingdom is, we have a big view of who God is. If we were to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 right now, we would see the Apostle Paul going in on this as he talks about the the beautiful mystery that God has predestined us, that He has saved us, that He has called us according to His will. This then at the end of chapter 1 leads into this worshipful prayer where Paul is like, Give us more of this, God. 
Help us understand this. Give us the eyes of the heart of revelation and knowledge and understanding into the Holy One. Paul wants a bigger understanding of who the King is and what His kingdom is like. And when we have a big view of God, we will properly fear Him as holy and righteous and just and yet loving and merciful and gracious. We can only do this as we are reading and understanding His Word. We can only do this as we're pleading with God, give us a bigness of the King and give us a bigness of the kingdom, which then will lead us to fear God and not man. But how do we know right now where we are at? Right, We're going to leave this service and we're going to go home and we're going to live this next week. We're going to come back. How do we know if we are fearing God or fearing man? Jesus tells us right here, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you acknowledge the King, Jesus, in front of others? Or do you deny him in front of others? Jesus tells us that acknowledging him as king in front of others, as he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is acknowledging you to his Father. That's one of them, God. That's one of them. That's, that's one that I shed my blood for. But as you go throughout your life and you deny him, Jesus looks away and says, I do not know them. How does a person deny God then? How does a person acknowledge God? Let me start with that second question first. We acknowledge God through what Jesus has been teaching us in this right here, instruction to the 12 disciples, proclaiming the kingdom and doing acts of mercy. We acknowledge Jesus, not just as our Savior, but our Lord, our King, as we proclaim the kingdom and we do acts of mercies. We live a life that is on mission to see all those around us know about the kingdom and the king, and how to get in. But the person who denies God, even those who sit in these seats right now that deny Jesus as king, are those that want Jesus plus something. Jesus, a convenient Jesus. A Jesus where I I want Him as my Savior, but I don't want Him as my Lord. Jesus as these are the church people I hang out with and I have my bar buddies that I go with. We want Jesus plus something else. This is how we deny Jesus as King. We don't submit to His kingship. 
This is why it's so crucial that as we are learning about the king and the kingdom and as we are fearing the king, we then submit to the king and we live out what the king has called us to do. Which, once again, as we go back to the beginning and the first point, it's knowing the king and the kingdom and how the king wants us to live. Though people may hate the kingdom and the king, do not fear them. Because your heavenly Father knows you intimately. You no longer have to live for the approval of mankind. It doesn't mean that you're a jerk or arrogant or hostile. In fact, that should make us the most selfless people on this planet because we have the approval of God. Through Jesus' blood, we are seen as children. So how about this, church? How about from this day forward, we live to please God and only God. And we do that knowing what Jesus has done for us. What great news that is. Let's pray. Father, would you help us strip away a sense of needing to please or, or a sense of fearing man and help us to fear you. Help us to fear you properly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.